Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. Moments ago, standing together with her wife, Sherelle, uh, in the Oval Office, I spoke with Brittany Griner. She's safe. She's on a plane. She's on her way home. After months of being unjustly detained in Russia, held under intolerable circumstances, Brittany will soon be back in the arms of her loved ones, and, uh, and she should have been there all along. This was the news that broke earlier today. The news that quite simply made people say, well, that's amazing because we didn't know any level of deal was in the works. But then you start asking questions about the deal itself. How is it that only Brittany Griner is coming home and not a retired U.S. Marine by the name of Paul Whelan? How do you go about giving up a guy they refer to as the merchant of death in Victor Boot? I believe it's pronounced boot, B-O-U-T, but it could be bout for all I know. How do you engage a one-on-one deal? And what is the implications? What are the implications? Because this is far more than saying getting an American back. And I'm not one of the people who engages the idea of, well, she said this about America, or well, she was there doing drugs. You will not get me to disagree that she made the mistake of trying to bring that vape, that cannabis oil vape back into the U.S. Don't tell me that it was medically prescribed. If it's illegal there, it's illegal there. Clearly, this is the Russians we're talking about, and they do nothing on the up and up. The purpose of keeping her was trying to gain a concession from the United States. We do engage these prisoner swaps. Is this a deal that we will lament in the future? Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Guys, it is great to be with you. Fred Flights joins us right now from the American First Policy Institute Center for American Security. Good to have you with us. Break down, if you could, having spent time in these high-level conversations, in these high-level positions, what it takes to do the back and forth to make a deal in itself on a prisoner swap. Look, uh, diplomacy is difficult. Prisoner swaps are difficult. I'm very happy that Brittany Griner is being released, but Vic- Victor Boat was a, a Victor Bout was an enormous uh, 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 person who the Russians wanted released, and uh, to, to trade this person who was trafficking cannabis oil and as a celebrity um, for this individual, I think was really an unfair trade. But look, I understand that the Russians want to come out ahead. They want to be seen as coming out ahead. Creative diplomacy could allow this. For example, in September, the Brits freed five British citizens in exchange for Ukraine releasing 55 Russian soldiers. That's the kind of trade you have to make with these adversaries. The trades are never fair. But this particular trade where the Russians supposedly said one-on-one and this has to be the person, I don't think the Russians said it had to be Brittany Griner. I think they would have been willing to trade for more Russians or for another Russian. But the incompetence of the Biden administration prevented that from happening. So uh, I want to make sure that I I start with the the baseline, though, and an understanding of how these deals are made. Is this the kind of thing where the United States goes to Russia and says, look, we got to get her back. This is wrong. You know it's wrong. It's got to get her back. How do we put together a deal here? Or is it the kind of thing where Russia says, uh, do you want her or not? Who, who in, in your view, initiates the, the conversation? 
Yeah, that is a great question. And there's more to this than you're, real, than you're aware of. I think there's no question that the Biden administration wanted her released because she's a celebrity and they wanted to score political points at home. I hate to put it that way, but that's what everyone is in Washington is saying. But what is not hitting the news right now is that this deal was negotiated by the Saudis and the United Arab Emirates on our behalf. They were the intermediaries. We weren't dealing with the Russians directly. So why would that be? First of all, the Biden administration has had almost no diplomatic contacts with the Russians most of this year, which is really appalling. Even in the depths of the Cold War, we talk to the Soviets. This administration doesn't talk to the Russians, and it doesn't talk to the Chinese. The second point is we don't want the Saudis and the UAE negotiating with the Russians because the Russians will want something from them. And what will that be? Oil prices. Keep oil prices high. This is a bad deal. This deal stinks on so many levels, but the fact that the Saudis and the UE had to do it for us makes it much worse. Talking to Fred Flights from the American First Policy uh, Institute. Uh, your your experiences in, in the, the White House, as chief of staff, uh, to national security advisor, the work that you've done here, you've now talked about this being a bad deal twice, but you also said it's good that we have Brittany Griner at at home. Is it a bad deal because Paul Whelan was not a part of the deal? Or is it a bad deal because allowing a trade for Victor Bout is the non-starter and creates much more danger down the road? Look, I, I we're going to have to trade bad people to get Americans out of prison. We've done that before. It's not a surprise to me that that happened in this instance. I think he certainly is worth two Americans. That what troubles me is that the precedent this sets, that the Russians set the terms of this deal, and that we were not able to go beyond the Russian terms to find a way to get both Americans out. If the British could do it with their five nationals, we could have done it too. Let me play this for you. This was President Biden discussing specifically how Paul Whelan was not on the table. We never forgot about Brittany. We've not forgotten about Paul Whelan, who's been unjustly detained in Russia for years. This was not a choice of which American to bring home. We brought home Trevor Reed when we had a chance earlier this year. Sadly, for totally illegitimate reasons, Russia is treating Paul's case differently than Brittany's. And while we have not yet succeeded in securing Paul's release, we are not giving up. We will never give up. We remain in close touch with Paul's family, the Whelan family, and my thoughts and prayers are with them today. They have to have such mixed emotions today. Uh, the reporting that I have seen is that the Whelan family was very happy for Brittany Griner and her family, but this idea that Russia is treating the case differently leads one to believe from the president's own mouth that Russia dictated the terms of the deal. Am I seeing it wrong? And how does the world see it? Russia wanted a one-on-one -on -one deal. This new story from Biden, we didn't hear a few days ago. We heard it wouldn't be a two-on-one deal. It would be a one-on-one -on -one deal. The Biden administration is trying to cover itself because they left an American behind. And, and I mean, it's just typical. When they do something wrong, they lie. I don't think anything we just heard from Joe Biden is true. I think the Russians would have dealt for both of them if we made them a good deal. The Biden administration didn't do that. The 
conversation leads into the idea of Biden weakness. We can go back to the pullout from Afghanistan, sir, and the absolute failure there, leaving Americans behind, leaving Afghanis who we promised to take care of uh, uh, behind, leaving billions of dollars in hardware to the Taliban, and Lord only knows where that has been sold to. Uh, The idea of doing things poorly, doing things mistakenly, not putting the United States in a best position. It's difficult when you're engaged in this level of negotiation because we're talking about real lives and we're talking about what can be done to people to try and create more pressure in the future. If you are there, you're with, you know, in in your time there as chief of staff, as an advisor to President Trump, what is the posture like? What does the conversation go like when Putin or Putin's team says no, no, no? What is the pushback for the better deal? How does that work? Well, first of all, you have to have a strong and decisive president, a president who's unpredictable, who are adversaries fear. And that was Donald Trump. You may not like him. Your viewers or listeners may not like him. But there's no question that his personality and way of running the government got things done. He got Otto Warmbier out of North Korea in exchange for nothing. We didn't trade anything to the North Koreans. Uh, And he got other prisoners out because he had credibility. Our adversaries were worried what Trump would do if they thwarted him. They're not worried about thwarting Biden. And I think this weakness and the fact that we didn't negotiate this ourselves makes us look even weaker. The world stage, this idea of weakness, talking to Fred Flights. He is of the American First Policy Institute, AmericaFirstPolicy.com. You can find out more about him and about the organization there. This idea of weakness, because when things like this happen, as you well know, there is a view on the world stage. And when you talk about the world stage, you talk about China first and everybody else second. China looks at this. What do they say? Does this change any uh, mathematics they have about uh, the possible invasion of Taiwan or or other plans for for Belt and Road 2025, uh, all, all of their plans? And then how does this play out to the rest of the world when there's a conversation about what is possible for their own wants and desires? I think Biden's weakness has already emboldened our enemies worldwide. That's why there's been such a surge in North Korean uh, missile tests this year, the largest number ever, 75 missile tests. The, the last highest was about 35 in 2016. North Korea may soon test a nuclear device. I think uh, China's increased harassment of Taiwan is directly related to what happened in Afghanistan, our disastrous withdrawal. And I don't think Putin would have invaded Ukraine if it was not for Biden's weakness. Bear in mind, Four presidents in a row, Putin invaded neighboring countries during three of them, but not the Trump administration. So all these people who try to say that Trump was weak, he was going to get us into wars, he somehow he somehow had a weak Russia policy. The Russians were worried what would happen if they invaded Ukraine during the Trump presidency. I think your listeners should think about that. Fred Flights, Deputy Assistant President Donald Trump, Chief of Staff to National Security Advisor, then National Security Advisor John uh, Bolton, uh, and then before the White House, Senior Vice President of the Center for Security Policy, and now with the American First Policy Institute. Uh, Fred Flights, I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. It's good to be here. Thank you. Absolutely. More coming up. I'm Tony Katz. DeSantis. He's got some things to say. He's the governor of Florida, in case you didn't know. And uh, he's uh, announcing some investigations. 
Florida, you know, it is against the law to mislead and to misrepresent, particularly when you're talking about the efficacy of a drug. Uh, we see just the other, uh, just recently, Florida got $3.2 billion through legal action against those responsible for the opioid crisis. And so it's not like this is something that's unprecedented. So today, uh, I'm announcing uh, a petition with the Supreme Court of Florida to impanel a statewide grand jury to investigate any and all wrongdoing in Florida with respect to COVID-19 vaccines. And we anticipate that we will get the approval for that. Uh, that will be something that will be impaneled, most likely in the Tampa Bay area. Uh, and that will come with legal processes that will be able uh, to get more information and to bring legal accountability for those who committed misconduct. Now, understand, it's a grand jury to investigate companies for fraud based on misrepresentations that people made about the efficacy of the shot. Now, it's going to be interesting. This is a grand jury to see if you can sue Pfizer or Johnson & Johnson. Here's where I think it gets interesting. If you were to listen to Pfizer, they told you that it was 95% effective, but I don't recall Pfizer, and I could be totally wrong on this because it's the Fauci and, and, and media apparatus that went into this idea that you get vaccinated and, and uh, yeah, you can't spread COVID. I don't remember Pfizer saying that. Now, if Pfizer said that, game over. I'm just saying that as of right now, as I sit here, as I just catch that, that audio, I don't remember that one. When people talked about breakthrough cases, we even said on the show, wait a second, if it's 95% effective, well, that means it's a 5% opening. What's the, what, what, what's, what's the deal? Okay, 5% chance you can still get it. So we always discussed it in this rational case. I don't recall Pfizer or Johnson Johnson or Moderna making the claim that if you get the vaccine, you can't spread it. If they said you get the vaccine, you can't spread it. Oh, oh, oh my. That's not going to work out well. But if we want to talk about misrepresentations, let's talk about media misrepresentations. Now the question is, how in the world would you sue them? That's the question. How in the world would you do it? I don't actually know. Do I know that people misrepresented? Yes. Yes, I most definitely do. Um, they're, they're, they're the women of the view to start with. And many more on CNN and MSNBC from there. How would you sue them? I'd be, I'd be curious to find out. We'll see what this grand jury does as well. Find everything, TonyCats.locals.com. This is Tony Katz today. In order to ensure the future uh, of Indiana, we need to make sure that we're hitting on a couple of different cylinders when it comes to business. And I didn't mean to use cylinders as a precursor to having a conversation about Automotive, but it's just the way it worked out, so I'll take the pun and I'll run, people. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. Find everything, TonyKatz.Locals.com, TonyKatz.Locals.com. A lot of investment going on, a lot of opportunities missed, and I got together with Gary Dick of InsideIndianaBusiness.com. 
on Twitter at IIB, at Gary Dick, G-E-R-R-Y, at Gary Dick, on the Twitter box, because this automotive conversation is just a gigantic one and really one that's very meaningful about Hoosier's uh, future and the problems that we're encountering. We start with Andretti Global. They just broke ground on their new headquarters in Fishers. Yeah, big uh, project for Fishers, uh, Tony. Andretti uh, Global, the uh, the parent of Andretti uh, Auto, uh, Autosport, $200 million investment in Fishers in what could ultimately mean about 500 jobs there. So a, a new corporate headquarters, global headquarters for the company there. But as you kind of uh, tease there a little bit, um, just one of several big announcements that have happened in recent months. Graham Rahal announced a $20 million uh, headquarters move from Brownsburg to Zionsville. It's right next to Rahal. Letterman Lanigan's uh, new headquarters uh, uh, there in uh, in that community. McLaren building a new uh, race and R&D facility in Whitestown. You go to Brownsburg, and a lot of that is focused uh, on, uh, on drag racing, but uh, a new uh, motorsports park. Uh, there and that's you. Know, you sometimes you lose track of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and all the things going on out there. But Roger Penske and his group have invested at least twenty million dollars since buying the track um, uh, three years ago, and more expected on the way there. So a lot of investment uh, certainly here in Central Indiana. So this is as you just described these things about racing and the racing yeah. world, and and there's an extent to which it makes sense, and also these things are are really important. They're valuable because they also have spinoffs for other technology opportunities. But let's go over a couple of the things that we missed on. You have Honda building their four point four billion dollar EV battery plant. In Ohio, doing that in conjunction with LG, they did not choose to come to Indiana. You have Hyundai deciding that Georgia was a better place than Indiana to build an EV battery plant. That's going to employ 3,500 people. Indiana has missed out on a couple of these big things, and I don't even know whether or not Indiana was in the running for these things. Are we discussing this as we're discussing uh, these these good investments from the racing world? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And, and you know, you, you mentioned uh, motorsports, and, and those are technical uh, STEM jobs, uh, typically paying a little bit better or sometimes a lot better than the average wage. But the EV battery uh, investments you talked about uh, are you need to have on the table. I, I do know for a fact that Indianapolis was competitor. In fact, some have suggested it was down to Ohio and Indiana for the uh, for the Honda investment because the the plant here in uh, in Greensburg. Uh, there's also the GM joint venture, big battery plant, $2 billion investment expected to go into uh, New Carlisle and St. Joseph County. So uh, the winners and losers, there are going to be more of these big investments. And you look at not just EV batteries, but that whole supply chain, if you will, for the electrification of the auto industry. Stellantis, joint venture in Kokomo, things like a billion and a half dollars and 1,400 jobs going there. So Indiana has won and lost out on these. There are going to be more in the future. The key, Tony, as you and I have talked about a lot, uh, is workforce and being able to convince the automakers that, hey, Indiana can provide that, uh, that talented pipeline of workers needed uh, for these plants. Talking to Gary Dick inside indianabusiness.com on Twitter at IIB. Let, let's dig in a little bit more uh, in, into this idea and about the workforce. If we go to inside indianabusiness.com, we will see how um, 
you've got Manchester University, which is up north, investing $20 million into a Fort Wayne facility. You have Indiana State University, which gets short shrift here in Indiana, getting an $8 million gift from uh, some of of their uh, supporters. The objective here is, the, I know the objective here is, of course, to grow your university and grow opportunities to be attractive. But are these places attractive to Indiana residents? What are these universities doing specifically to attract more Hoosiers to stay here and, and say, sorry, IU, sorry, Purdue, there's a better option and opportunity for me that satisfies all the requirements for a good time and, and a good education? Yeah, those are great points, Tony. And I think the Indiana State announcement as well as the Manchester announcement from Fort Wayne are two good examples of what universities are doing. The $8 million gift at at ISU will create uh, the Bailey College of Engineering and Technology, getting a new name on that that engineering and technology uh, building there. A big focus of that will be producing more STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math students uh, who go to Indiana State to make it more attractive for those technical kinds of jobs. You go to the Manchester uh, announcement up in Fort Wayne, $20 million uh, just announced this morning uh, for a new uh, health sciences uh, uh, curriculum and building in that uh, in that city. Again, focused on aligning with the needs of the community. It's a healthcare uh, hub uh, for that part of the state and uh, in Northwest Ohio as well. So it's about producing the graduates that that uh, that that businesses need that's healthcare in that part of the state, and then you can, you can go on to Ivy Tech and Vincennes and the two year institutions and their importance in this whole the whole mix. You know, you mentioned Tony the electric vehicle, uh, uh, you know, batteries and components and things like that. Ivy Tech's uh, involvement in Kokomo really was one of the things that helped tip the uh, scales toward uh, Kokomo and Indiana for that big big investment from Stellantis. So you're going to see all of the universities, four-year institutions, as well as the two-year colleges and universities here in the state playing a role uh, in that workforce. Let me um, move the conversation a little bit into areas we don't usually talk about on the show, but you've got it on the site uh, there, InsideIndianaBusiness.com. I, uh, discussing this earlier, the story of what has taken place with the Indianapolis Public Library and how there was a CEO candidate out of New Orleans who was offered the job over the interim CEO here in in Indianapolis. The community, and I'm saying that with air quotes, in uproar that the interim CEO was not offered the full-time CEO job, uh, really getting aggressive, so much so uh, that Dr. Gabriel Morley, who was offered the job to be the CEO of the Indianapolis Public Library, has turned it down. One would question whether or not it was just uproar, whether it was a violent uproar. I don't know how one describes I know how I might describe it. I don't want to put words into your mouth. What exactly is this saying to, to you, to the business community, uh, and exactly what does this create in terms of a look for Indianapolis? Is there a problem that comes from this, or is this just, this will be uh, uh, swept under the rug, it won't even mean anything in a week? Yeah, I don't, I don't you know, frankly, this is just personal opinion, and certainly this was uh, an issue with, uh, with the library and those some uh, employees and others uh, had their their thoughts on who the CEO should be. Uh, voiced those uh, opinions, and uh, the uh, the person who was offered that job from New Orleans did, 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 decided to de- decline to back out. 
I don't think it's going to have any impact, Tony, business-wise or otherwise uh, uh, going forward. I think it's going to be, uh, you know, uh, kind of an internal public library situation, and, and uh, we'll go from there. So we'll see We'll see what their next step is. So next step uh, on the library to see uh, who the next CEO is going to be. Yeah, I think that uh, I, I'm curious when these things happen, it, is it saying something uh, about um, – Indianapolis is it saying something to uh, the community uh, writ large that that uh, wh- whether it's it's our actual indie uh, community or whether it's to a business community whether it's to the future of of, of convention business uh, that maybe this is a city focused on the wrong things or focused on uh, too many things that are uh, trying to virtue signal as opposed to uh, get into the to the nitty gritty and actually be supportive. So I, I asked the question solely for the. For that reason, Gary, that these things can uh, multiply on themselves. They can have residual. But your argument is probably not in this case. Don't don't see it. No, I, I don't see it in this in this case, um, you know, at, at, at all from a business standpoint. Certainly, it's a uh, it's a big issue in in with respect to the library and the community. But beyond that, I don't think it, it's going to have much impact. Now, this is where Gary Dick and I disagree, and I thank Gary, uh, InsideIndianaBusiness.com. And and I disagree in that if we are seeing these advancements in wokeness and we're seeing the the radicalness in the, in the position, the position of, well, you have to hire people who are uh, this race or, 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 or this uh, denomination – or this identity. Otherwise, we're going to scream and yell and we're going to forcibly prevent people from taking jobs by instilling fear into them, which is, well, clearly the argument that's that's made here, right? That's the argument that is made regarding this, this, this library leader that didn't take the job out of, out of New Orleans. That, the, the, the objective was to scare him into not taking the gig. So I take it. That's how I take it. And I wonder that's how others take it. Because my fear is that what you create is now this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. Oh, look what we got done here. We can do this with this CEO. We can do this with this leader. Do this with this group. And you don't discourage, you encourage the behavior of bigotry. Because as I've discussed, it's bigotry. You can't hire the white man. All, all right, bigots. All right, I mean, that that's what it is. Now, you can argue you should have hired the black woman, which is what these people are arguing, this interim CEO, but they went through an entire selection process and they chose somebody else. And so what they, of course, have said is that the the, the leadership of the library, the, this board of trustees, are bigots. That's what the people have now said. I don't know how you unring that bell. I don't know how that doesn't do damage. I just don't know how that doesn't do damage. We're going to be reporting more on this. Keep it here. This is Tony Katz today. This to me had to be repeated. This clip of Joe Scarborough on MSNBC and Mika Brzezinski. And who are they talking to? I forget the dude they're talking to. Uh, It's. The hatred for Elon Musk is so great, 
and so incredible. And the way people are characterizing him, look, if you ask me if he's a conservative, the answer is no. If you ask me if he should be treated like a god, the answer is no. But clearly this expose of things that have happened on Twitter before his purchase, how much people were working to silence those they disagree with. I mean, that's a story. Not as big of a story as all the people who are totally okay with it. Yeah, yeah, conservatives were silenced. Isn't that cool? What's the big deal? It was their company. They could do what they want. They, there is no admitting that there was wrongdoing because they don't actually think it was wrong. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. Which is why I've been saying the story here throughout everything regarding Twitter is that you knew the truth, you wouldn't be pushed away from it, and now you've been shown to be right. And when that's the case, keep at it. And look how hard they're going at Elon Musk. Look how hard they're going to prevent, well, well anybody from listening to him, to, to try and disparage him. Listen to this today from Joe Scarborough there at MSNBC. <laughs> You know, like his, his thing on Anthony Fauci, I, again, dangerous. I, again, I just, it it's is. stupid. It's dangerous if you have a lot of money in Tesla. It's stupid otherwise. Yeah. All of this sort of Twitter infighting, again, Andrew, okay, you brought him up. So I'll just say, I like, I can get off Twitter. I don't really care. Right. But I'm wondering what a guy spending $44 billion on that. He's got this brilliant mind for, for inventing things, for, for, for creating things. I just, every day, I wonder, why is he acting like a backbench Republican in the House of Representatives instead of, like, the richest guy in the world, a guy who could actually take the country in positive places? I don't get it. What don't, what don't you get? How is he acting like a backbench Republican, which is what you were when you were in the House of Representatives? He saw, he sees, he has issue with how Twitter was run before and the lies that were told to all of us. He sees the silencing of Americans, of people writ large, and he's like, yeah, this is wrong, and he's exposing it. And you think that's acting like a Republican backbencher? My God, you suck. And you don't have to. You don't have to. You know how many people argue that Morning Joe is the elite morning show in America? Well, the answer is less and less because, Joe, you're doing things like this. This is not a rational, reasonable, logical response to what Elon Musk is doing. I think the bigger question is it took $44 billion to get to the truth Exactly what will it cost to figure out what's going on at Facebook? Where you know these same things are happening and the only thing that's preventing them from having to be exposed is that it would take a lot more than $44 billion to purchase Facebook. Now, I, I have made this argument, and you, you've seen my videos over there at Rumble, rumble.com slash Cats uh, about this. If the only way to get to truth is to spend $44 billion, we have a real problem. But I go back to what I said earlier. We saw that things weren't right, and we kept talking about it, talking about it on radio, talking about it in social media to the best of our ability, talking about it with our friends. Nonstop, we kept at it. And it really did get other people to start noticing the problem.
So part of that solution of how do you fix these kind of uh, relationships that parties, political parties have with big tech, government has with big tech, the suppression uh, of speech from big tech is to stay on it. But there's another part of it. The people out there who want to say, well, it was no big deal. Oh, what do you care? Oh, it it didn't affect you. Hey, they're allowed to do it. My gosh. That's something else to start talking about. Look at all these people who don't really give a damn about the American way of life. Well, these private companies can't. They don't care about the American way of life. That's the story. Free speech is meaningless to them, and they're proud of it. If they can keep you from engaging, they're cool with it. My gosh. We got a lot of work to do in civics, people. But these, this constant attack on Elon Musk, this is gaslighting. And it didn't work to keep us quiet on what Twitter was doing. Can't let it work now. It's just keep us from seeing what it is that Elon Musk and others have been exposing. Find everything, TonyCats.locals.com. Tomorrow, everyone, take care.